Jews in the Mediterranean that are, that are taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. There just had to be literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. And so you could see what a threat that it probably was to the Romans to see these people lying in the streets and proclaiming the things about Jesus that they were proclaiming, you know, that he's saying that he was the king of the Jews and he was coming to save us and, and all of these things. So you can see that everybody was, you know, on alarm and, and this was something to be concerned about. So that's kind of the backdrop of, uh, of the beginning of the week for Jesus. The crowds are all in his side. They're all excited, anticipating uh, something that is hopefully going to be amazing. And last Sunday, um, Justin spoke and he kind of took us through an event that happened a little bit later that week on Thursday. Um, the, the night that Jesus had, had the Last Supper uh, with his disciples, he washed their feet, had the Last Supper, and then on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would uh, later be arrested that night, they're walking by a vineyard. And, and Justin shared the story of how Jesus kind of used that visual imagery uh, to communicate to his disciples the kind of relationship that they needed to have with him in order to kind of carry on the, the, the mission that he had begun. And he said to those guys, you know, listen, just look, look at these vines, you know. Just like these branches can't produce fruit unless they're connected to a vine, you guys aren't going to be able to do anything unless you stay connected to me. And it was a very challenging message for them at that time. They probably didn't understand the implications of that, but it's challenging for us today because it, it kind of sets up this, these, this, these two camps of either self-reliance or God-reliance and, and how we go about living our life. And over the past two months, we've been doing a study on the famous last words of Jesus when his time on earth was drawing to a close. He just had a few months and, and weeks and now just days left. What were the things that were closest to his heart, the things that he just wanted to make sure that his disciples understood because he knew that he was getting ready to die and, and be resurrected and they were going to have to carry it on. And today we've, we've arrived at the cross and today we're going to be looking at literally the last words of Jesus uh, right before he, he took his last breath and died. And <clears throat> much has been made in, in the last maybe 15 years or so of the, the physical uh, brutality of the cross um, in ways that some of those older movies might not show. We have, you know, many of you guys have seen The Passion of the Christ where Mel Gibson really dug into, you know, the physical pain that Jesus endured uh, on that in, in a very visceral way that was hard to watch at times, you know, um, but especially kind of hard to swallow when we realize that, that our sin required such a brutal penalty. But this past week, I was, I was wondering if in the midst of kind of the, the emphasis or the focus on kind of the blood and gore of the cross, if we've lost what I feel like is a really important part of the equation as well. And that's the emotional pain that Jesus suffered. And, and after the nails were driven in and the cross was hoisted up and set into place, I want you to picture kind of the the, the scene that came into vis the vision, you know, the, the visual field of Jesus and, and what he was watching in that moment. And the crowds that had lined the road welcoming in him into town, now a lot of those people are the ones hurling the insults and shouting the mockery at Jesus, you know, for claiming to be the king of the Jews and, and for claiming to be the savior of the world and the Roman soldiers who have just nailed him to the cross are, are at his feet rolling the dice and, and to, to take whatever belongings that Jesus uh, had with him. 
These were all people that Jesus had created, all people that Jesus was in the process of dying for. I'm sure that he's looking around and wondering, you know, where his best friends are, his disciples. One had already betrayed him. One had already denied him three times. And as he looks around, out of the 12 guys that he's invested and poured his life into, there's only one, John, that's at the cross with him in that moment. And you can imagine just the overwhelming sadness and just emotional pain of that moment for Christ. And I want to just take a moment and then kind of lead you through a little exercise. I did this myself this week. And I, don't want, I want to invite you to just kind of close your eyes. And I want you to kind of picture yourself in Jesus' place. Looking out on the crowd of probably thousands of people. And I want you to think about the, the looks on the faces, the, the words that are being shouted who's there, who isn't there, and how all of that might have impacted Jesus. Just take a minute or so just to kind of picture that in your mind. Some of us might be better at <clears throat> visualizing things than others, but what, what sense did you get of, of some things that might have been going on in, in Jesus as he, as he looked out? Did God give you any kind of feelings or emotions that he might have been having? What came to mind for you? Yeah, Bob. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay, so two kind of competing things, the disappointment on one hand, but then the realization that it needed to happen on the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just the physical pain of that. What else? Yeah, Will? Yeah. 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 Could you imagine if your children were the ones nailing you to the cross? I mean, that's what it was like, that amount of love uh, that Christ had for, for his people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just the public humiliation of that scene. Yeah, 
love, can, can I just go on a hill and do it by myself? I know I need to do it. Does everybody have to watch me and yell at me and make fun of me while I do it? Yeah. What else? It's good stuff. You know, for me, the thing that came to mind for me was, um, was the sadness, but it was mixed with just compassion. Because as Jesus looks at these people, he knows everything about them. He knows their stories. And he knows what it is that they're looking for, what it is that they're wanting from life, from him. And that they just don't know how to deal with with this reality and what that means for them. Because at that time, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. <laughs> Without the resurrection, if all you have is just the cross, that's extremely disappointing. And so I think that there's a lot of compassion on Jesus' part of just understanding that, that, that what's going on here is, is kind of almost beyond these people's ability to take in and comprehend <laughs> at this moment. Um, so... In addition to the human element that we've talked about and some of those human emotions that Jesus might have been having, and sometimes I think we separate the fact that he was God from the fact that he was human. We have to remember that he's fully human here too. He's just like us in some ways, you know. So, um, but there's also this cripple, crip, yeah, crippling reality that in order for Jesus to take on the sin of the world, all of the sin that's ever happened, all that would in the future, all of us and anybody else who will ever live, he had to take it upon his shoulders at that moment. God had to separate himself from Christ because God is holy and perfect and he couldn't be in the presence of sin. And so this is the first time that Jesus and his father have ever been separated from one another. And you hear the agony in Jesus' voice as it's recorded where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what I, what I hope to get out of this experience this morning is to kind of broaden our, our sense of really what's going on beyond just the physical things that we've seen kind of depicted in movies recent years, but just the emotional pain that was going on as well. And it's important to understand <clears throat> how people died during crucifixion. It wasn't primarily from the physical pain of it. Um, it was mainly because they suffocated um, because of the weight of that uh, being held up by your wrists, your, everything kind of slumped and everything compressed. And so to get a breath, you had to push yourself up and take a breath and then slump back down. And after a while, you just got too tired and exhausted. And if you weren't dying fast enough, they'd break your legs to speed the process up. So that was going to happen at some point. And so if you can imagine how difficult it was just to take a breath, imagine then trying to talk in the midst of that. And so you understand why when you look at the passages where Jesus is on the cross, there's not these big long speeches that he makes. There's like one sentence, maybe two sentences at the most. But, but we can learn a lot from just even the very small snippets of words that, that Jesus has for us here this morning. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Page 734, Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Verse 32 says, Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So the first thing that Jesus says as he looks out over the crowd from this vantage point is he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, they they don't understand that they are killing God currently. (laughs) The one person that really has the opportunity to really do something about their lives, they don't get it. So have mercy on them. But I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say they are forgiven. So he's not making this blank statement that, 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 that all these people are forgiven. What he's doing is he's opening up the possibility that they could be forgiven. Even these people, even the people that that killed me and mocked me and nailed me to the cross are not beyond my capacity to forgive. Okay? So he makes this this statement and, and it tells us that he came for people just like those people that were there that day. Foolish people, ignorant people, self-centered people, bloodthirsty people like them, like me. And Jesus puts no limits on those that could be recipients of his grace and forgiveness. Do we? What boundaries do we put up on who we feel like is worthy of our forgiveness? How far does someone have to push us How deeply do we have to be hurt before we say, man, I don't know if I could forgive that person. With this statement, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We see kind of the fulfillment of, of everything that Jesus has been talking about up to this point. If you go back to the very beginning of the Gospels, the first uh, real long, lengthy sermon that's recorded there, the Sermon on the Mount, it takes up Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. Jesus says a lot of things here. Here's some snippets of the things that he says. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it's one thing to say those things on the hillside in relative safety. It's one thing to hear those things in the pews on Sunday morning and to shake our heads and go, oh yeah, man, gotta forgive people. Yeah, gotta love, right? And it's a completely different thing when the heat's turned up and when you're, when you're nailed on the cross by these people that that have conspired to kill you and to live those things out. Because it's in those moments where you really find out what it is you believe. This was not a warm and fuzzy moment for Jesus. It was not easy to extend that offer of forgiveness. And it was one of those times where I feel like the, the obedience to the command to forgive had to supersede whatever hurt or feelings of betrayal that he might have been experiencing in that moment. So how do we respond when the very people that we're called to love and forgive 
are causing us very real pain because our true beliefs are revealed in the crucible of suffering. When we're most wounded, when we're most betrayed, what are the emotions that kind of rumble around at the core of our soul? And I can tell you this, for me, it's usually not very pretty. When I feel like I've really been offended, somebody really is just, I know they just intentionally have done something to harm me. I'm, I'm a person that's pretty quick to forgive on the outside. I can extend those words and I can try to move on. But if you had the ability to record the thoughts going through my mind and what was going on in my heart, and especially when I'm in the shower, man, I have these great conversations in my mind about all the things that I'm going to tell somebody, you know? Oh, man. I'm a hero in the shower, right? And then I come out, I'm like, ah, got to be like Jesus, right? I might not want to hurt them physically, but I wouldn't mind if God did something to kind of mess with them a little bit. You know, if I have to forgive them, at least make it a little uncomfortable for them or something. Anybody relate to these feelings? Yes? Well, soon after Jesus' kind of universal proclamation that, that everybody there at the cross, no matter what their role was in the day's events, had the opportunity to be forgiven. Does this whole offer becomes very personal uh, very quickly. And if you remember... Back in verse 32, when we started this passage, it said the two criminals were crucified next to Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. And they're listening to this conversation uh, that Jesus and the things he's saying and just his demeanor and, and how he's carrying himself. And maybe they've heard things about Jesus. They probably had. He's, he's pretty famous. They maybe even have heard um, some of his teachings or some of the things that, that he said. And their ears probably perked up a little bit when, when they heard this proclamation that, that these people who had just beaten him and, and all this stuff, that they could be forgiven. These criminals are thinking, man, maybe it's not too late, you know? And so they enter into this conversation, but they take it from a very different, two very different approaches. So let's look at verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And don't you just love I just love scripture and just these stories because right down to the very end, God kind of sets up this dichotomy of how people respond to this offer of forgiveness. They both want to be saved, right? One guy just kind of wants the getaway car. He just wants out of his circumstances. He's not really concerned with, you know, giving his life to Jesus or praising him or anything like that. He just wants out of the jam that he's in. And there's so many people in the world that kind of respond to God like that. Maybe they get to the point of desperation enough where the consequences of their own sin have kind of caught up to them and they're kind of tangled in this web of their own mess. And they might be desperate enough to actually go to church. 
and maybe even desperate enough to start reading the Bible or start praying or start giving some money to charity. But all along, their motives are really just selfish. They're kind of treating God like this genie in a bottle, right? And if they rub him the right way, if they just do the right things, maybe they can kind of convince him to give him, give them what they want out of life. You know, change my circumstances, get me out of this mess. That's really all they're looking for. And it's interesting, I think, that Jesus doesn't even respond to the first criminal. He doesn't try to convince him how wrong he is or how selfish he's being. He doesn't even waste his breath. Remember, he can't take many breaths, so he has to be choosy about the words he says. But he realized this guy's heart is so far from being humble, I'm not even going to spend the time trying to convince him. How much time do we spend trying to convince people that really aren't humble and interested of how wrong they are and how they should do this and that? And it's interesting to see the way Jesus handled that situation. But something that clicked with the other criminal, <clears throat> taking in this whole scene and this amazing offer of forgiveness, he seizes the opportunity. But notice the things that he acknowledges. He says, hey, listen, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm guilty. This guy hasn't done anything. And then he makes this unbelievable statement of faith when you think about it. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What all is wrapped up into that statement? Yeah. Yeah, what is that statement? He, she said he's putting himself out there. What does that statement say about what he believes about Jesus? That what? That he's true in what he is. That he's true in what he is, that he really is the king. It doesn't look like he's the king. <laughs> he's being killed on the cross. I mean, this is an amazing statement of faith and that there is a kingdom to go to, right? That there is some place where, where we can go. And so you think about that, it's like, man. <laughs> and I'm reading that this week, and, and, and maybe you've wondered this too, is how does this guy connect the dots so well? <laughs> How does he figure this whole thing out and, and put it so succinctly in a way that, that shows so much faith? Has he heard the gospel message before? We don't really know his story, but, but a verse popped into my mind that I think we need to keep in mind here. It's from, from John. Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. And that word draws them in, in the original language of Hebrew literally means to drag. Nobody comes to the Father unless he drags them to him. And it's kind of like a horse you can drag to water, right? But you can't make him drink. And so even though this guy, the only way that he could have connected all these dots is if the Holy Spirit opened his eyes in ways that he couldn't control and made it make sense to him. So he can't take credit for figuring to crack in the code here, okay, and either can we. But he still had to have the courage to speak up and accept the offer. So how does Jesus respond to this deathbed request for forgiveness? And just to keep in mind, like, this is the only story in the Bible where somebody kind of accepts Jesus at the last moment. This is not a normal occurrence, you know people to say, oh, you know, well, when I'm dying, I'll, I'll ask Jesus. It's not, it's not like this happened a lot, okay? 
And this guy had done nothing in his earthly life to earn any favor with God. He was dying as a criminal. He confessed that he was that person. We would imagine that he probably, his crime probably involved hurting somebody else. He may or may not have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness from that person, okay? He also wasn't going to be able to do anything for God after this to earn his approval. This was a moment of complete and utter grace. As Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. And, and in the Bible, when you hear that phrase, that's like the strongest way that something can be said. And a lot of times it'll say, truly, 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 I say to you. So they couldn't use like italics back then, so they just said it several times. So he says, I tell you the truth. You can take this to the bank. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not, hey, we're going to get you up there and we're going to kind of try you out. You know, you've been kind of a snake on earth. We're not really sure, you know, if you're legit. So you're going to start off here in the basement and we're going to give you a few tasks and maybe next year we might move you up to, you know, level one apprentice angel, you know, and then maybe in a few years you'll get to be a full-fledged member of heaven. They say today you get it all. And this kind of blows out of the water any idea that we might have that we can create some amazing resume that qualifies us as good enough to get in. It's not about us. It's not about the things we do. It's about what Christ did for us and what he offers us. And it also definitely smacked in the face of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. Can you imagine them listening to this conversation and thinking, that guy gets in? <laughs> you know, we're, we're sitting here working hard every day to try to be so obedient to God to earn his approval, and that guy at the last moment just says, I'm sorry, and he gets in? And there's a lot of people in this world that have a real hard time with that amount of grace. <laughs> Today, you will be with me in paradise. Interesting word choices here by Jesus. He says, with me. 700 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet named Isaiah in the Old Testament who said this about Jesus. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That name Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus made this promise himself. He said this. He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In excruciating pain, with the last words that he spoke, we, we get an amazing insight into things that are dearest to the heart of Christ. First is that the offer of forgiveness is for everyone. No matter what you think you've done, how horrible you've been, how far you've pushed him, you're not beyond the capacity for him to continue to love you and forgive you. Secondly, his grace for those who come to him in, come to him in humility is, is far beyond what most people would think it is. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's, 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 
something that we can't comprehend or deserve. And finally, his greatest desire is for each of us to be with him in relationship. He wants to share paradise with each one of us. And he was willing to die an unjust death for us to experience it. And as we see the heart of of our Savior in his last words that he spoke, you know, as always, we've got to kind of ask ourselves, what does this mean for us today? And I don't really know completely who all is in the audience this morning, but I would imagine there's somebody here that's maybe never really received that offer of forgiveness before. You've never really laid claim, laid hold to that truth. You know, as we were singing earlier, that song, I Am Set Free, it is for freedom that I am set free. If you have never been set free, you try to sing that song and you're like, eh. If God has never rescued you, if you never allowed yourself to be set free, then it probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Those of you that have begun a relationship with Christ and you understand that because he has forgiven us that I don't have to worry about what other people think about me anymore, I don't have to be perfect all those things, these, these things that the people of the world put so much hope in and trust in and worry about so much, we're set free from all of those things. There's a joy that should come from that. Some of you guys have laid hold of that promise, but you're not living like you do. <laughs> you're coming here to church and you're singing these songs and you're just kind of falling on deaf ears to you. And you need to wake up and you need to remember, man, what have I been given? What have I received? What have I been set free from? I've been set free from death. I've been given eternal life. So many good things. Some of us, I mean, we're all called to receive it, but as we receive it, we're also called to extend it to others. And so when we look at Jesus' example of forgiveness and grace, we then have to ask ourselves, how do I do it, extending that to other people? Where do I draw the limits What prideful thoughts get in the way of me being able to really forgive someone and and to will the best for them? How do we communicate to others around us what they must do before we'll kind of loosen up the purse strings of love in our hearts that we kind of keep a pretty tight clinch on sometimes when you look at Jesus and he just pours it out so lavishly? Why do we want forgiveness and grace from God but then have a difficult time extending it to somebody else? We want to be treated with a ton of mercy, right? When we get to heaven, we hope that God's in a great mood that day, right? Because we know how screwed up we are. But then when somebody else comes to us and they've hurt us and they, and they forgive, we're just like, eh, I don't know, I'll think about it and I'm pretty hurt. Imagine how much we hurt God every day. We want him to be great to us, but then it's just like, oh no, it's this double standard that we live with, right? I want to encourage you all this week <clears throat> To, to connect with the cross at an emotional level. Not just, yeah, the things that we know are true about the cross and what that means for us, but connect with the emotion of it. Jesus' ability to forgive even though he was really hurt and betrayed by his friends and his people, his children, as Will said, you know. Connect with that at an emotional level and then ask yourselves, why is it so difficult for me to extend that to other people? Guys, forgiveness is the crown jewel of the Christian faith. It is the thing that sets Christianity apart from any other religion in the world. It is our ability to see what Jesus did for us, to receive it, and then to be able to extend that forgiveness to other people.
that is a testimony to the world that, that, that far outweighs, you know, the, the biggest blowhorn you can get standing on the corner screaming at everybody about they're going to hell or whatever, okay? Forgiveness is the crown jewel of our faith. And this week, I want you to really live in that emotion and really ask yourself some questions. Maybe you guys have the obedience to forgive people, but why do you still have the emotions that you do when it comes time to do it? What is it in you that just kicks and screams sometimes at that? And I have to ask myself that as well. Next week, we'll look at the cross and some of the things that happened after Jesus was resurrected and how he interacted with people. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your example.